Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to part two of a two-part series with Gordon Keep. If you didn't catch part one, I highly suggest you put it on your list. Gordon is an unsung legend in the capital markets. He's built or contributed to building over 250 companies, some of which have become jaw-dropping success stories, like taking a nascent oil and gas company from $0.25 up to $30. He and his partner Frank Justra have traveled the globe identifying assets, assembling management teams, structuring deals, and finally, financing them for growth. When you listen here, Gordon elaborates on these four components and their importance in a good deal. As I mentioned in the previous episode, this felt like a crash course in public venture capital and operating a public company. So stay tuned as there's a ton of valuable information here. When you're looking at an RTO candidate, not not a candidate as an asset to vend in, but as a a vehicle to take an interest in, what do you look for? What would you... I think you're quite... Go back. Do you want to rephrase the, the well, question? I'll start the question differently a little bit. There's four key aspects of it. Right? You've got to find a great asset or there's, there's no point in doing it. Um, then you need to figure out who's going to run the deal. Uh, I don't run 250 companies. Right? We have people that we know that do it and we retread the people when they do that deal and it gets taken over, then they look to do their next deal. So there's a bunch of company runners out there that you want to keep supporting and they may run two or three companies at once if it gets big enough obviously they can't um, so you need a management team we will augment that with some of our people either on the board or maybe one of our people will be cfo or something for a period of time until they go big enough and, and, and hire their own people the third leg of, uh, of the table is, is the structure which is where the question uh, is coming to and then the fourth is is putting the money into the package and stirring and hopefully it all works. <laughs> but your question on the structure, which is my role in, in this group, uh, is I have a, a group of people out there that fix broken companies. And they do that by themselves mostly or with their group of friends where five of them, because that's the limit of what you can do on a without treating a tiger ribbon, uh, we'll acquire a bunch of shares in the company through a private placement after a rollback, whatever. They'll clean it up, they'll rid of the old assets, they'll clean up the debt, they'll settle the debt, have what now is a clean vehicle. And there might be some, some small stuff in there, but I don't really worry about that because usually it's less than $50,000 problem. You know what's there and you know you're acquiring and that's a cost of acquiring. So then they will sell you Depends on who you're dealing with, but they will sell you a portion of their position or all of their position, depending on what price you're paying. Uh, a lot of them will sell you 90% of what they have done to create the company at somewhere near their costs, because their costs aren't all cash, because their costs are the fact that they're managing and they're charging management fees, and they've got other stuff they've done that has created shares for themselves that isn't necessarily cash cost. So you can end up at the at two and a half, three cents, four cent cost base um, on some of the, the share positions, or they may have bought some shares off the previous old management they got for next to nothing. So it's a blended price. And they keep the 10% because they know that that 10%, when you pay them two or three cents, and if you put a proper smart deal into it and it goes to a buck, they've, they've made a couple of years worth of salary on, on that yep. and they can roll in work on, on creating another vehicle. There are people that do that for a little Quick question to that. I mean, you can look at a CPC and rule of thumb value we used to throw around was about half a million to a million bucks is what you'd value that CPC at. Is that the kind of same thing you'd look at for an RTO? 
Yeah, it's it. The market changes it. If you were looking for a vehicle a year ago, when it's crypto space, basically all the vehicles got used last fall. Everybody who could do anything to raise money or, or, or go public was 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 out of vehicles. I phone them up, and say, "What you got? I got nothing. It's going to be six months a year before I'm going to have been able to properly clean up a vehicle that's ready to be public." to have an asset going without people worrying about it. I mean, that's the other thing you got to make sure, the vehicle requiring, you got to make sure that the guys, because a lot of people that are coming, like we found them, met them in the States, met them in South America, met them in Europe, and they want to go public on our exchange. They don't want to know about some old ancient oil well in Alberta that's been bleeding oil for 30 years on the ground. It actually happened to be one of my big deals. It cost me a hundred grand of my own money to, buy out of that problem, which I had no idea because it was a 1991 oil well, which was not in any of the financial or any of this. Hmm. So it's occasionally, but out of 250, I've had two problems. You've got to be careful, but that one caught me out. But it was a lesson. Um, so you want that vehicle you want to have as tight as possible. So with many shares of the issued capital, the price, uh, that was the question you asked me, the half million dollars is probably on the lower end now, you know, I'm usually looking more around 750, 800. Um, some people are asking 3 million bucks because they think they got the Cadillac from shelves. Themselves and myself don't talk very long um, <laughs> because that's not reasonable in my world. Um, but it's really a function of, of how much of the share position they own that they can transfer to you uh, is, is key. Um, and as I said, some going back a few years ago, there was a few shell sellers that I would approach and they would give them to me in zero for me because they kept that 10% for themselves. And one of them went to $7 a share and they had a million shares and seven million bucks for being a shell seller. Wow. That's not a bad limit. Yeah. So, but they knew like, not everyone's going to do that. They're doing it because we have a history and we have a history of taking two cents, uh, five cent deals and turning them into multi-dollar deals. So and they, if they give me one of those a year, they're quite happy. <laughs> now I don't think I'll put some bucks either. With another question, how do you tactfully take profits if it's not an exit? Well, that's, that's my problem. I don't take profits very well. Um, I still write stuff up. I write it down. Um, and, and that is nice, nice to see we have something in common. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, we, we do everything independently to a certain extent here. Um, once the deal is up and launched with our own share positions, um, you know, often I've walked into Frank and said, hey, what do you think of this stock? And he goes, you still own it? Like, oh, crap. <laughs> Guess I'm a little late on that one. So I'm not a good example of how to do that. I'm also a series of boards and, and, and so on. And it's true. I am because I'm the governance guy within the group detailed guy, I often represent our interests by sitting on the board. Now I'm on an insider, therefore everybody knows exactly how many shares and options and anything else I have that's fully publicly disclosed. And um, therefore anytime I sell, it's a public knowledge. And if I sell 10,000 shares, I'll get 20 emails. Like, what are you, banning the company? I had 2 million. I mean, it's not necessarily material to the, the nature situation so yes it does put constraints on myself on, on ability to sell tactfully the right way to do it I think is to support a company throughout the piece if you feel and you have to if, if you're going to be in the deal creation business and, and moving from one to another to another to another you have to you have to take your capital out to put your capital back into a, to another transaction but you want to do that when the company is able to handle the sales. Uh, so that's a situation where it's had a success, whether it's a drill hole or some other business success, and you've got all of a sudden every day you get a million shares. So if you sell 50,000 shares a day in those market, you're not affecting the price, you're not hurting the company, and you're taking some profits. Mostly in my sales strategy is, which is 
sometimes works, sometimes isn't. I very seldom will hit the bid because that's a negative to a company in which I've helped create. If I bought some shares just from somebody else, I'll hit the bid all day long, but I won't do it for the deals that I'm part of. And then I usually layer it. So, you know, if it's a 50 cent stock, I'll put 10,000 out of 50 and 53 and 57 and 60 and let it breathe. So I'm not sitting there. It's value. Not everybody does that. That's me personally. Uh, so yes, I'm usually one of the last guys holding shares for various reasons. But you have, you know, people have to realize you have to sell at some point. You've invested all along. You have to sell at some point. Uh, something. Um, I still own Wheaton River is a deal we created in 2001, which became Gold Corp. I still own those shares. Some of those shares. Um, so that's what. 18 years. Wow. <laughs> so I held on to my Lionsgate shares, a few of them right to the end. Uh, I wanted to be beginning and I wanted to be at the end, but I gave up about six years ago and sold it and then the stock went a lot higher. So. Huh. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's not an easy answer and it's something that causes uh, friction. It, it's going to cause friction because no one wants a seller. Everyone yep. only wants buyers. So it's only market if you get buyers and sellers. When when talking about structure, what kind of share structure do you prefer? Do you something that's that's tightly held or a large share float with higher liquidity? Well, yeah, that, that's an excellent excellent question, uh, and the answer is not as simple as it, it seems. The answer is depends on what the market wants. Um, in some cases, in, in softer markets like we're in right now. Uh, you need a fairly tight vehicle, 10 million share, 20 million share issue, capital, maybe 30. Um, and it's going to trade in today's market, that stock, if it's our stock with 30 million market cap, uh, million shares issued, sorry, it's going to trade in the 20 cent or $6 million market. Uh, you know, back in 07, when everything was running and everything was running, uh, I used to, you know, Take control of a vehicle, and we announced that we're it's now our vehicle, and we're running it as a shell, looking for assets, with no preconceived idea of what's going in it. Um, and people would jump all over it because what was happening was, when we halted that stock and did an RTO, it was gapping. Using as an example, we were the shell was trading at thirty cents. The next trade was a buck and a half, right? Because that's where we financed that deal. So the People that were following us and wanted to make sure they were near our deals and ready to jump in in a retail way were bidding the stock up because they would be happy to pay 75 cents and go to a buck and a half and worrying about sitting at 30 cents. So back in then, the stock exchange used to call me out and go, Lord, this company, it's trading at 70 million market cap. I said, yeah, I know. He says, what's it got in? I said, my name and 500,000 bucks. And they go, well, that's ridiculous. And I said, I know. Do I put a news release that's saying stop buying my stock? But when we found a deal, that market cap of 70 would turn into two or 300 million. So, but that was a different market. And it happened a lot. And so in those cases, you want a, a large vehicle with lots of liquidity. And you obviously can own more shares in, in a bigger vehicle for that for yourself. And those were very profitable times for very, very many people. It changes. Uh, you know, the, the deal we hive we did last August of 2017, that was a very large company, 100 million shares or something like that. And, but it traded 10 million shares a day. Now, we did a whole bunch of financing, so at the end of the day, there's like 300 million shares to shoot. So it was all people that had bought it, but it was a hot space at the right time with the right product, with the right structure, with the right management team. And we were first. And that's a lot of our successes, which we haven't gotten into, is, is identifying areas that are going to be um, topical and of interest to the investment community. And crypto was very much that. And we were the first public crypto company, and it went to ridiculous valuations because of that. And we were able to raise $200 million between September and December on the back of that excitement. And now the stock is back to where we went public at. Unfortunately, I still own it all. <laughs> um, how, how about we get into 
where you focus and and uh well we look for opportunities our skill sets because we learned so much in days of of our Yorkton and others internationally, we had a lot of contacts, we understand the international community, we were able to take risks in Colombia before a lot of people took risks in Colombia. Uh, we were in Kazakhstan. Uh, going back to uh, long part of this conversation, when you know you had South America open, as soon as it got sort of mature-ish, all of a sudden the whole former Soviet Union exploded. All of those satellites now were available for investment. So we went into Kazakhstan as part of that, and, and that was our uranium deal, which was hugely successful um, because we timed it right. And it is, to my knowledge, still the largest ever deal done in the stock exchange at its launch. We did $500 million financing at launch. And bought one mine and, and two development projects, which all three became mines. But... Uh, we took a lot of criticism for that, and I think that was actually the one that the article was on, uh, because it looked like we made a ton of money because we own a ton of shares, and we did. Solomon time as well for me, but others did. And the reason what people are missing on that is we sat back and looked at it and said, uranium has been in the $7 to $11 price range forever, and we think that clean energy and all these aspects of uranium is, is going to change and come about. So when we went public, it had gotten up to $22 a pound. And in fact, our technical report writer, 43101, would not let us use more than $15 in our forecasts, even though it was trading at 22 because it had been at 7 to 11 forever. This was, in his mind, an anomaly. But no one remembers that when they, they give us heck for what we made on that deal, uranium went up to $136. So a year and a half later, we sold it at 18 bucks a share. It went public for a buck and a half or whatever, and the seed capital at a quarter. A lot of people made a lot of money. Then it went, where is it now? It's, uh, actually, no, it's around $30 a pound. But it, 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 that was the high, and, and off it fell, and, and it wasn't successful. So what we look as opportunities of what people want and what we think they're going to invest in. A more, much more recent example is like three years ago when we just, it wasn't even Frank and I, it was the, our new partner, Ryan, who identified that the battery industry and therefore lithium and cobalt were going to be areas that were going to probably have growth and were going to be shortage of. And we did our research, looked around, created a company to go and find lithium. I've talked about some of the pricing, and, and we're right. And now it's it's fallen back off. Is everything has its its time matures, and either you know, who knows? Excuse me, the crypto space. Whether is it maturing now and going to bounce back, or was that just a fad? The internet was a fad in two thousand. It's not a fad anymore. Um, but a lot of people lost a lot of money in two thousand when when it matured into a crashing situation. So. We look for that situation. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, one of big early successes in 2001 was Wheaton River, which we got hugely criticized um, for buying a mine in Mexico at, uh, um, I can't remember what the price was, 350 million bucks or whatever for an existing producing mine from a private family in Mexico, the Luisman mine. And Gold was three and a quarter, 350, something like that, an ounce. And everyone, and this goes back to Eurasia, when we went public in Eurasia, everybody said that we had overpaid for those ounces. But we, were, we weren't paying it because we thought the uranium was going to be $22. We thought it might go up to 50 or 60 bucks. In fact, it went to 136. It was awesome blue sky. Same thing with, with Wheaton River. We bought that, and everyone said, you're paying like market retail value. That's not a wholesale price. You're, you're way overpaying for that asset. And the answer was, you're right. If you think gold's going to stay at 350, we think gold's going to $1,000. And we were right. So what informs that, that bet you're taking? 
Well, that's mostly Frank. Uh, Frank's a very, very smart individual. As you said before, an ideas guy. He's an ideas guy, and he's more than that, though. But he, of course, he yeah. does a lot of research. Back then, his premise was all about the U.S. dollar going to come down, therefore gold will go up, there'll be more demand for gold. He, he wrote a whole bunch of papers, which I actually still have in my drawer, back then, in the early 2000s, 2001, 2005, about why he thought gold was going to come off its horn. And he wasn't wrong. It's just, you know, he does the research. It's like Brian did with lithium. It's, it, you just look at it and see where the market's at. The market will adjust. You know, everything has had a spot. Potash went that. We went to the potash space. We missed it. We missed it by about eight, nine months. Uh, so that deal is that we did. It's, it's got a mine. It's just got no one that cares. Um, so we did our job. It's just no one cares about potash. It's, it's not a hot space. So everything has its moment in time, and, and then it corrects, as has copper, and copper will come back. And so right now, we're looking for gold assets. I was gonna, yeah. The next question is, we, is we, what are you we, seeing? We what are you think thinking? That that's the next moving um, commodity in this market right now. So we're out through our networks trying to find a logical gold opportunity as well. We still have some very strong gold deals. Our Sand Spring deal, which is a huge resource down in Guyana, but we bought that previous cycle, but they gave it away to us because they couldn't fund it themselves. I think we, we, we invested. That would be one of the broken things, one, one of the companies I guess you could put in that category because the asset was there. We went and helped them finance because they couldn't do anything at about seven cents or something. And then it went up to 50 cents and now it's back to a quarter. And we've been funding it and keeping it alive from a quarter to 35. Because that's a mine that needs 1350 gold, and it hasn't got there. <laughs> that eventually would be a huge winner because ultimately gold will go back to $1,900, and that will be a very, very profitable asset. We're not always right on our timing. We still think that's a winner. Uh, you know, another historic company, Silver Wheaton, which is now Wheaton Precious Metals, which is another company we spun out of uh, Wheaton River. Uh, and that was done solely because, of the, not solely, but there was no silver companies. Silver is a, for those that are not in the mining world, is a byproduct. It's very few straight silver mines. There's a few, but not very many. It's mostly a byproduct of gold mines or copper mines. It's, it's just stuff that gets produced as the main product. It's, it's mine. So, and the Americans are huge silver purchasers. So the, the actual valuation was if it, gold was one, silver was two. So the value of silver, the market was paying twice as much for the same value of silver as for the value of gold. And Luisman was had a lot of silver as part of that gold. So we thought, well, why don't we bifurcate the company such that we can isolate the silver opportunity and then people can invest in it as strictly as a play on silver. And we did that. And Gold Corp, River, whatever, kept 80% of, of the asset. We created a $3.90 $3 price per ounce purchase price, um, et cetera. Then they went and did a few other deals as well. That stock took off, it's one, and it has like 40 employees and does, I can't remember how many billions of dollars of revenue. It's, it's a huge success, and uh, Wheaton River ended up selling their position for $2 billion. We create a whole ton of value because when they were reporting previously, they were reporting in gold equivalent ounces. So you weren't getting that two-for-one value. And, you know, Franco Nevada was way ahead of us, more in a royalty basis than a streaming even today, a lot of what we created with Silver Wheaton as a structure still is used by the other streaming companies. They're still even using the $3.90 price a lot. Hmm. Established, and we're talking 12 years ago. Right? So that's a timing thing. And you know, that's reading the market and, and seeing that that's a product that the market's ready to invest in, and then figuring out how to make it work. We tried to do the opposite with a copper mines with copper gold. And that, create a gold streaming company based on base metal mines. It didn't work. It doesn't work because in a, in a 
base metal mine, they just shut down. Whereas a gold mine with silver is always going to produce because they're both precious metals. So the dichotomy caused the problem where, yeah, you had you got all the gold at a certain price, but they, even though it was, the gold was still profitable, if copper wasn't, then the mine shut down or reduced its production, therefore reduced copper plus 208 hit. <laughs> August 208 is about when we launched that company, which is about the worst possible the market crapped after that and that was that's the other reason it didn't succeed but it wasn't no one tried to do it again because it it didn't work right and even we river and the timing thing the other big asset we bought was alambrera uh, which actually had some interesting dynamics in it but can, can you elaborate on those well alambrera was a what was everyone thought was a mine about to be dead and again this is 2004 2003 2005 somewhere in there that it was almost mine dead. I can't, I, I'm brain dead on name. So two large companies owned it. And Wheaton River approached one of them and they were selling it. I think we bought it for $80 million, 50% of that mine to the copper bullets. It's still producing today. It, it's almost done. I think it's in its last two or three years of, of product. But anytime when you think a mine's done and then you get a bump in, prices, the mine's not done anymore. We, but it was a big company. Big companies can't turn and make, they put it up for sale a year or six months or eight months before that. We made an offer, even though it looked like the market was starting to turn, they, they weren't in a position to take it off the market. That's not the way the big companies operate. So we paid them 80 million bucks, I think 40 in cash and 40 in a note. And we made 80 million bucks in the first six months. We paid that off right away. So it was like that and the Louisman were the two big builders of the river, which then merged. And is that an example of something that you would have structured up as an RTO? Not that one. That was a bolt-on to Wheaton River, which okay. was an RTO. Um, actually, Wheaton River wasn't truly an RTO. We just acquired a shell by financing and acquiring assets. So it's not quite an RTO. Excuse us as we took a quick break here. We entered this conversation about midpoint, discussing what works and what doesn't work in promoting a public company. This business doesn't work now. Right. It's, it's a relationship business. It's a trust business. It's a, it's a trial and error business. So the fact you pay someone to do something and it doesn't work, and it worked last time, that's what happens on the third time. Right. Work or not work. For so many smaller companies and... CEOs who perhaps it's their first kick at the can, or maybe they've done it five or ten times, they still look and go, what the hell is the formula? And the formula changes with the market, with the times, with sophistication. If you look at stuff uh, you know, back in the 90s versus now, it's a completely different world. Uh, there's a lot more sophistication. There's a lot more expectation. There's the Internet, which you can get, get information which you couldn't get back then uh, so people are way more informed or also way more misinformed by various real fake news uh, or other issues that are out there uh, you know these chat rooms and so on there's there's incredible I don't go near them I don't read them I don't look at them because they're only going to piss me off because they're 90% wrong and 90% vitriol um, so I don't need to read that and go to bed and angry at myself or them or want to converse with them because that's the other problem with a public company. It can't get into social media battles of any sort because that's a form of disclosure. So you can't give a separate disclosure. If you say something to one person, you have to tell the whole market that. So I don't go anywhere near social media. Now, it's a huge tool for your generation and, and people today how they communicate and get their messaging out and so on. Um, so I'm approaching the dinosaur age in, in that, that I, I don't do it, but at the same time, you have to be careful when you do do it. And that's, you know, a pitfall of being in the public domain now in that area is you have a lot of young people who, who are really energetic, really smart, really know how to do things, but they def don't necessarily know the definitions that trips you up in the regulatory world. The Securities Commission, and to a lesser extent, the exchange has been 
going to town on a lot of companies in the last six months, eight months, with disclosure that's happening in, in the social media space that either is sanctioned or isn't sanctioned by the company and how they're going to balance that disclosure. And if you pay someone, in the old days, if you hired a letter writer, but he wasn't controlled by you, you just paid him to write a letter and he would send it out. He could say your company sucks. He probably isn't going to do that if he's being paid, but you you didn't actually edit his work because then you owned his work. So he would write or she would write whatever they were doing. The commission has changed their stance on that today, that if you pay someone to write any sort of, or distribute any sort of information on your company, you own it because you paid for it you own the responsibility for it to be balanced and, and accurate. And they have really started to go after a lot of companies where, as you know, that stuff spreads almost like a virus. It gets out there and then people change the heading into something very promotional because they want to own it for their investor base or their chat room space or, or whatever. And again, I'm speaking somewhat unintelligently because I really I've never been in a chat room so I don't know what it even looks like um, that they can come down and say well you said this but now it's saying this so they may make you print a retraction release on something that is over promotional or now taken so far out of context that it's it's actually wrong um, and that's a delicate balance and for them as well as for the public companies as to where you go with that and it got so much, I'm a little off topic here, but even in the uh, U.S. markets, the OTC market, which is over the counter, but they've got a, a more viable trying to be not exactly like the venture market as a, as a place to build companies, but as a place to trade companies, where if you're on the QX or QB, that means you have a certain amount of regulatory oversight. Basically, if you're on the... TSX Venture, you qualify for QX and QB, and it allows the U.S. brokerage firms to trade you. Well, this well, a year and a bit ago, last October, a year ago October, they came out with their promotional policy, where if you, and we got caught in it with one of our companies, where a um, they said, look at this promotion. It was Hive, actually. They said, look at this promotion that's out here. And because it was such a hot story with the crypto space, etc., everybody was covering it and claiming it as their idea to buy this stock because it was taking off and trading tons of volume, which is why it was trading tons of volume. It sort of got a life of its own. But none of the stuff that was being written, we had any control over. We didn't pay for it. It didn't come from the guy that we were paying. They were taking some of his articles and then just piecing it together and then putting a real promotional overtop on it. And so when we tried to list down there, they said, we won't list you because you're too promotional. And all your material, here's the material we're reading, and this is way too promotional for us, which is something they had never done before. And we pointed out to them, we've raised $200 million. We're a true company, and that's just someone else's crap. It's third-party crap. It's not us. They said, I don't care. And they have done that to a bunch of legitimate companies where they make them put out a news release disavowing all this social media crap that's crap, and yet it wasn't theirs. So I won't let my companies list down there right now because it's too risky to have to put out a news release saying all this isn't true when you didn't put it out in the first place. Right. It, it just taints the company with a really bad image. So it's a minefield out there to be in the public company space at the moment. Uh, you know, and a question you asked me recently when we were offline for a second was, you know, how do you find the right shell? Who do you deal with? This business is full of scoundrels as well. So you've got to be careful that who you're working with that you can trust and that the deal they're saying they're bringing to you and the shell that they are identifying as a legitimate vehicle for your business actually is what it is and if you just like the question you asked me is a half a million dollars the right number so if someone listening to this goes out and says oh oh this is four hundred thousand i got a good deal well maybe not 
Yeah. Because you don't know the person well enough. Just because it's 400 doesn't make it a better deal than 500 if it's not well structured, or well put together. So if you're new to the space as a CEO, you need to surround yourself with advisors, of people that have been in this space, can identify who are the right crowd to work with and who are the crowd you want to avoid and try and avoid as many pitfalls as you can that you don't you don't trip yourself up and destroy your company by having married the wrong guys, the wrong team of people. And there's tons of them out there. I know how to weed them out because I've done this enough times. Um, there's people that... What are some of the telltale signs? <sighs> you know, a lot... People problem saying is, it's that, a lot oh, of it. Oh yeah, he's my friend. He's my buddy. No, he's my not buddy. even that. I mean, yes, obviously, you know, that's your, your, it's your gut feel. It's how 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 they present themselves. Do you feel you need to have a shower after you've talked to them? Um, does what they're saying make sense? The problem that we're trying to address in this conversation is those people that are not familiar with the space and haven't done it enough times to know and be able to to have that smell test. It's. There's so many different times I, I, I've been in, in meetings with people. I said, well, how could you have believed that? Well, they didn't know any differently. They didn't have any measuring sticks to measure what they're being fed because they're, you know, as the saying goes, a lot of it was Greek to them. They, they, they didn't know. And it, it goes to investor relations contracts and people that uh, are, are running those. Uh, you've got to know who they are and where they're going to take that information that I was sort of alluding to in this, this other uh, social media stuff or other websites or so on that they might create, they may start out legitimately yours, but then they deviate off a bit because that's making the money by selling it to some other publication or other channel of, of distribution. And it's no longer the product you approved. And yet you paid them initially, so you sort of own it. And right. so... Can you trust those guys to do what they've contracted with you to do? And some of it means you have to sit on top of them. And right, right now, any article that goes on any of our companies that are in the IR space, my team has to read it as a governance basis and say, okay, yeah, there's nothing in here that I think the regulators are going to have a fit with or IROC's going to make you restate your statements. Sometimes... IROC doesn't like a certain word, and they will do that, but very seldom. But it's a risk because right now you've got you've got a, an industry that's exploding as part of the social media. You're not just in the mining world anymore. In fact, that's almost been left behind in the last year or so. Um, so you're into this whole new industry stuff that no one really knows enough about to know whether this crypto deal is better than that crypto deal or, or this AI is better than that AI or any of these stuff that's coming out. And the language behind it. And, it's, you know. it's, yeah, you don't have enough people with enough experience. And that's very, very, you know, it reminds me very much of 2000 when everything with a dot-com after it went to the moon and the price just, and it's, it's like the complaint that commissions had here, just because you make yourself so-and-so blockchain doesn't mean you're actually in the blockchain. And they... You know, their stocks would double overnight by putting the word blockchain in their name. Right. And so the commissions have now banned that kind of activity uh, and have warned investors to make sure there's actually something underneath the name of the company besides just the name because you don't want to just hurry up and buy before it's too late kind of approach and find out it's too late for you uh, rather than too late for the profit. So you really do need, if you're going to come and get in this area, you can't do it on your own. You need to find someone that you trust, respect, that's got a history of doing good deals uh, to give you guidance, whether that's your legal counsel or whether it's, it's groups like ourselves that have done it before can give you. I, I meet with people constantly and give them, no, that's not public, or in, if they're trying to make us or ask us to be part of their deal, it may not be big enough or there's not enough of a reward in it for us. Uh, How we don't do it for free. <laughs> absolutely. How should people approach approach you? Oh, I don't mind anybody approaching me. That's part of my role here is to, to sieve through 
people that have ideas and want to show them to Frank, I'll read them first and say, okay, this is something that may or may not be in our in our target zone. Um, and I would say 95% of it isn't. But then I will tell them what where to go or what you know who else might look in that space if it's smaller or it's a space that we're not interested in if I know um, but certainly if they say hey I'm working with Mr. X or Miss Miss Y um, yeah I'll let them know if I think they're a person they should be looking at but there's there's no magic pill you can go to the stock exchange they will they will actually give you guidance as much as they can because they obviously can't say someone who hasn't been fully disciplined that they're not actually a very good lawyer or something like that. They can't make that statement given the position they're in where they have to be somewhat neutral. But they can talk to you in a way in which you'll get the opinion that maybe you're not with the strongest team. Um, they yeah. won't tell you you're not. You're going to have to read between the lines. But if you ask them the right questions, they may recommend other names or whatever. They're, it's not really what their job is, but they are a resource. That's one area to start, but it's more, you know, if I think about the number of deals, especially in the Yorkton days, would come in, they would sit with me, go through everything, and say, actually, I like this. And I'd go to, to Frank and, and, and Bob and the guys back at Yorkton and say, okay, here's the deal I just saw. I, I like it, but the guy's green. He, 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 he's never been here. He's come from the States. He's heard about the wonder of our market. I think his asset's good. I think he's a really trustworthy guy. I'm not sure he's a market guy because he doesn't understand the market. And they'll look at me and they say, yeah, yeah, now we're too busy, not interested or whatever. And then two months later, I get called into a meeting and they're sitting there. But they're sitting with someone who understands the business. They've now met someone who can say, I'm holding this guy's hand. I'm going to help him make the market. I'm going to help make sure he has an investor base, etc. His asset's good, and boom, we're doing the deal. I found it two months before that, but the guy wasn't coming with uh, with the credibility that says that this is going to be a success. Validated by those who are validated by people who have been in it and are you know deal runners or deal facilitators. Um, deal we can't runners. run every deal. Yeah, deal right. runners is perhaps something that could be taken with a bad connotation. What would you, how would you describe that? Is a is there detail on that? What, well, what it depends is a deal on, runner? I mean, well, that's good. I was going to say it depends on how you define deal runner. Yeah. Um, there's groups that, that do deals like, a, you know, a Clive Johnson with his Beam of Gold and his B2 Gold and his BMAT and so on. He'll have four or five deals that he will run. And he'll, he'll have his own engineering team and so on and, and do some wonder. And Clive's been very, very good at it. You, know, you take it to the other extreme of the Murray Pezum days, which, again, you're probably too young to even remember him, where he'd have 100 companies under his management and you know, half of them were schlock and some of them found the biggest gold mines in Canada. So, you know, he's he, he fire enough arrows, hopefully you're going to win a few. But he could run a deal. He, he had a team around him to know what the regulatory policies and rules were. No one does that as much. You know, our team, my company, my group of, of uh, 11 that I manage uh, that run public companies from a regulatory perspective, I think we have about 18 to go at once that we're managing. And now if they're actively just exploring their property, there's not a lot of work to do. Right? You're just making sure they file their financials and they file their AGM and they got their stock option plan and and they're putting their news releases out right and uh, you know have the right compensation and, and uh, the right comp committees and all that sort of stuff. So it's not that big a deal for me to manage that many. If I was trying to manage the amount that are trying to go public through the RTO process, well, that's a lot of work. There's a lot of paper flying and a lot of time and pressure and financing and so on. So you know, I can handle two or three of those on the go at once, but uh, that's because i got 11 people doing it. Right. Um, <clears throat> so how, how do you find that guy? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it, there are a lot of trial and error. Again, even if you're naive, you should have some to have been successful enough to be coming up here with, with a business, assuming you have a real business and not some of these other fly-by-night type of situations that come up. Um, you've got some basic knowledge, but there's enough people like myself or others that you can phone and say, hey, I'm talking to Mr. X or Miss Y, and 
what do you think? And, and I'm like, do you have anybody else I should talk to? Just by coming up and walking around the industry or between law firms or accounting firms or something, there's enough basic knowledge there that they're going, you should be able to bump into enough good guidance and ultimately latch on to someone who really uh, agrees with your business model that you're trying to do and can help you do it. But it is a risk. You have to be very careful that you haven't married the wrong people and gotten too far down the line. And I see that a lot. The guy comes, oh, yeah, great. I said, yeah. And he says, yeah, we got this shell. And I went, well, that won't work. That's just not going to work. He says, yeah, but I signed a contract. I can't get out of it. Sorry. Sorry. See you later. Mm. Yeah, I can't help you. Um, sometimes they can get out of them. Uh, or sometimes I can help them fix it. Or when the people find out it's our group and it's that time when being part of our group is successful, they'll restructure their thing knowing it's now got a little more intelligence behind it or a little more experience behind it is probably a better phrase. So it, it's, there's no yellow pages which says, deal runner, go find this guy. He can help you. Because you need that person needs to introduce you to the Frank Juicers, the Peter Browns, the Clive Johnsons, the... Um, you know, the guys in Toronto, uh, there, there's a, a whole bunch of guys, and it's not that big a community, but there's a whole bunch of guys that have helped run deals or finance deals and take a piece of the action as part of it. How big is that piece of the action? Well, from our perspective, as big as I can make it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's like any negotiation. If it's, if it's not a win-win for everybody, it doesn't work. If you take, if you ask for too much, the deal's not going to come. You know, some people will come to us and say, "Well, yeah, you know, I really want you to do this and put all this effort in, and you know, you can have a hundred thousand dollars." I went, "Yeah, but we're looking for ten million. As with the share price going up and our position, we want we want the upside potential. We're not just we're not we're not paid by the hour. Uh, so um, it can be reasonably small, or it can." depends on how much effort is there what the problem with what i'm about to say is if you end up with the wrong guys you end up giving too much to the wrong guys thinking you're doing the right thing and then you're screwed but it's like when guys go and raise money with a broker and they need five or ten million bucks and they don't know where to get it themselves but the broker will know where to get it and he goes well that's going to be seven percent seven percent that's a ridiculous amount of money i'm not paying that you know, someone else told me they can raise it for 3%. So you go with the 3%. And then you sit there three months later and you're willing to pay 3%, but there's nothing to pay it on because there isn't anything there. They, they really couldn't do the deal. Um, so you have to make sure that you can uh, incentivize the people to make your deal work. And it costs money. It's not cheap. So coming up here thinking you're going to do it for hundred grand and or something, it's just not going to happen. It, it, there's a there's a cost of the vehicle, which may or may not be your cost. So when, when we go and find a deal, that five hundred thousand to seven fifty I talked about earlier, that's not a cost of the public company. Or the guy coming up, we paid that. Yep, we own that piece. That's so. That's your when he's bringing his asset up, he's going to vend his asset into our shell. So we may going to your earlier question, what is that? So let's say our shell is is of which we own call it 60% of a shell, hopefully more, but call that number. And then they, we say, okay, we're going to go public at a market cap of 50 million bucks. We want 10 million of that market cap representing from the shell, 40 goes to you, and then we're going to raise 10, 10 goes over here. So it's 50 million pre-market, pre-money. So that's a 60 million go public money with 10 million plus your asset. We think the public will, will finance that. That's the negotiation that's going on. Is that number 80-20, 70-30, 50-50? And then we own that 60% of whatever that other number is. And it's been as low as 10% and it's been as high as 50%. All right? It depends what they need you for and what are you bringing to the table. Are you just bringing how to go public? Or are you bringing $10 million or you bringing also the fact that once we get you public, we can then merge you with this other company that's in the similar business and double your size overnight because we know these people. And we try and do that a lot, right? If we got two gold companies, we think they're actually complementary. Well, let's put them together. We may create one first, get it to a certain price so that 
you know, we get proper return for, for shareholders on both sides. So it's, there is no magic formula uh, and different markets are, are different times and there's no doubt it's, it, this is an art. It's a, I think so. Uh, you know, I happen to have some, a lot of the pencils, so it makes me easier to be, but to say that, but it's not, there is no textbook on how to do this. There's no go and read this or, you know, your MBA class is not going to tell you this is who you meet and this is how it happens and this is where it's going to go. It's, it's an evolving art, which evolves with the market itself, as well as reacting to any uh, new regulatory pressures that are put on them by the governments or uh, like this OTC thing I was talking about, that was a push down from the SEC saying, you know, there's too, too many people are saying there's too much schlock on the OTC market. Well, the OTC pinks are full of schlock, <laughs> but QB and QX weren't, but they didn't want to let, they wanted to make sure that none of that happened. So they put in this draconian promotional policy, which like any policy, it has a pendulum. So now it's way up top and now it's about a third of the way back down to normal. They're on their way. I've talked to them. I've, I've suggested that I might try listing a few companies to see how they react now that it's not as draconian as it was. It's a little more balanced uh, in favor of the public company doing the right thing. Um, and I lost track as to why I went off that. Yeah. <laughs> that I tangent. think, uh, well, I hope so. I'm not trying to be arrogant either, but it is a, um, it is a business which takes a lot of well, there's a lot at stake. There's, as, as you said earlier, there's if you put ten years of your life into a into a business and think it's ready to take it public, and you marry the wrong guys, and a year later you're lost your asset, kind of sucks. So you need to take the time and effort, not not be too rushed, but you also need to make sure that you understand what you're getting into, how you manage that process, who you surround yourself around as advisors, and then grow from there. I mean, a lot of a lot of huge successful companies have, have done this. It's, but it's a risky market. It's a venture market. There are more failures than there are successes. Right. And, you know, out of the two hundred and fifty that I've done, you know, some of them, you know, Petrubialis was <clears throat> one of the larger Pacific Rubialis, as it ultimately became known, went from a little uh, oil and gas company in Colombia to the largest independent in South America and you know went from 25 cents to 30 some odd dollars and huge market caps they borrowed a billion dollars to build a pipeline and then the oil price changed hmm. they don't exist anymore so is that a success so, or failure yeah I was just gonna ask yeah, <laughs> everybody still tells me how much money they made on that deal by following our, our our lead and that was again one of those ones where we ended up with two or three different public companies which we merged into one all had their own oil and gas assets and all got to a certain size and made it bigger and and then it got critical mass and and again it was the right time and the right place with the right decision and it was a very successful company until it got into the debt side of the equation timing's huge and it is and if you know oil had stayed over 100 bucks they would still be pumping out a ton, ton of dollars but they they took risk to take the debt to get more oil through the pipeline and Pipeline owns them rather than the other way around now. So, oh. um, with with some of these questions, you, you took note. You wanted to speak to, I think, a couple of points. I, what I had here was what stories are most memorable, any tense negotiations, strokes of luck, laughable moments, or unbelievable deals, or who were uh, some of the legendary characters, which I think you touched on. And I mean, I think you're one of the unsung ones. But uh, what wins and losses led to uh, life-changing career lessons? Um, but life lessons, you know, I got, if you want to call it lucky, uh, one of the first deals I did when I got into the this side of the business, from the regulatory side of the business, when I left the exchange and joined Yorkton, was an incredible scam. Uh, and I was a guy making 30 grand a year, and the guys that were getting scammed, which were my bosses, uh, you know, they're million dollar a year kind of guys, and I'm going, well, they must know what's going on, it just doesn't seem right to me, but... They're in love with the guy, and you know, I uh, I used my knowledge or my spider senses, but I didn't speak up enough. So I learned that I should have probably said it. But they, all these guys, could see is is how exciting this guy was and how much money they're going to make. So they were blinded. Um, 
and they lost. And that was 1987. It was a million bucks. And I, they sent me to Toronto to go and get the money back from the scoundrel. He actually took a meeting with me, surprised the hell out of me. And then he said, yeah, hi, Gord, thanks for the million bucks. I'm uh, on the plane today to my sailboat in the Caribbean and tell your guys you're never seeing your money again. And then wow. he left. And that can was you breakfast. share the name? Uh, Randall Steep. Randall Steep. And there's another one. Uh, I don't need to go into the depth of that, but because I had been through the first one, I recognized the second one immediately, and it was a situation where two of my partners hadn't run anything past me. They did it on their own, and when I came in on Monday morning, I was trying to undo something they had done on the weekend. Uh, and, and again, it was small world type scam stuff. So that's how I, by by seeing that, I, I could I could recognize the scoundrel type side of the the uh, the picture. And that really helped me in the way I looked at things and the way I treated people. And if it sounded too good, it probably was too good and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, the other lessons that I learned is this business is about sharing. Um, well, the first of all, you want to, and, and I give Frank a ton of credit for this because he's done it a couple times, which is to go out and build a team and hire good people. And it's enough to hire good people, but then you got to let the good people actually do their job. Because I've worked with other people that hired good people, but they wouldn't listen to the good people's advice. And Frank's been very good with that, and I've been part of some phenomenal teams where we can say no, the engineer can say no, the oil and gas guy can say no. Even though it looks like we're going to make money and it's all structured right from that side, the asset doesn't stand up and Frank will walk away from the deal. So the important thing is hire people that know what they're doing, looking at it, can, can tell you when you're not wearing any clothes, and then listen to them. Don't just override them because there's an extra buck in it. Because if you want to be here for 35 years, you can't make that extra buck because then you won't have the second buck to do it. No one will want to work with you. The other thing is when you deal with those people is reward them. It's uh, There was one person I worked with after... Uh, um, which I won't name, but it was when the market was turning down and he hadn't made enough money, so the pie that used to be spread around a bunch of people went 90% to him and 10% to everybody else, and that's not a winning formula. Uh, so if you make sure everybody that wants to work for you, you make sure they have an option package if possible, they get bonuses whenever bonuses are given, and then you'll find people will work 70 hours a week if you need it, and then when they don't need it, make sure they go home at 2 o'clock and Go skiing or whatever. Uh, Enjoy you, you, life. You, you've got to, it's got to be a balance and you've got to appreciate the people you're around and you got to realize it's not all yours. It's got to be spread out to people that make it happen. There's always problems. Um, again, I try and surround myself with the right people to solve them. I've had the same lawyer for 35 years wow. or 30 years, 1987. Um, and Jay's been my main lawyer and We've grown up together, we've understood the business, we've learned the business, we catch each other, and, and Frank and I, we've been partners for 31 years, um, and we understand each other, and we have completely different roles. Uh, and that's, I guess, as a learning lesson, uh, never mind the right people, make sure you understand what you're good at and what you're not good at. I'm a horrible company promoter or or that kind of thing, but I think I'm really good at at administrating and, and, and governance and, and putting things together and, and avoiding problems, thinking thinking about problems before they happen and make sure they don't happen. And Frank would hate to do my job, and I can't do his job. But mm. as a team, we're great because I don't want to do his job, and he doesn't yeah. want to do it. Does it ever bother you not getting the notoriety? Uh, not a lot. I mean, that you're right. No one knows who I am, and I'm pretty happy with that because then I don't have – all the press and stuff that Frank has to deal with. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not out for that. I'm just out to be respected and, and appreciated for the efforts I'm putting in, and and I think I am. So I'm quite happy with where I am and how it works. But I, I have been a bit of a lone wolf, which is a problem Frank and others have. That when I uh, choose to retire, now that I'm 62 almost. Um, I don't really have a replacement, so, right? But he's also sixty-two, so our game right now is 
when are we retiring? Well, I'm retiring when he retires, and he's retiring when I retire. So I don't know who's retiring first. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a standoff. I don't think either of us can. We're too, we're too hooked to the business. It's such an exciting business. Wow, real passion, eh? That's cool. It's, it's well, I enjoy nice going to work. Incredible, you know? incredible history. <clears throat> we've been lucky, and we've been good. And you got to be good to be lucky. And we've made mistakes. It's not all been a piece of cake. And, yeah. Uh, and there's been a lot of challenges. Well, luckily for us, there's been virtually no real lawsuits. Uh, there's been nuisance stuff, but nothing, nothing serious, and no significant regulatory problems at all. Yeah. And I take a lot of pride in that. Yeah. There's 30 some odd years without a regulatory blemish. The only one I have is uh, we were late in filing financials, and that was because it was a Venezuelan asset, and they had just been expropriated, and it took us six months to do them instead of three, so we were late. You were saying that you you have a lot of the pencils that it makes it easier being an artist, and there's no there's no education you can go find about this. But I think that's one of the the greatest reasons why you know you taking the time and sharing your experience here is helping put the outline on the canvas. Those are really my life lessons on it. I'll take them. <laughs> what do you say we you know I think we've got so much good stuff here. Looking at time, you've got a call coming up here. Oh, I do. You're right. If we were to you know, wrap up with a closing statement for CEOs out there, regardless of industry, from your experience, any final thoughts for them in, in managing the public markets? That's a big question, um, or a big area, managing the public companies. Because CEOs that are fresh to this business have to be very, very careful that they don't forget about why they're going public. What is the asset? One of the big downfalls that I see, which happens to way too many people, is the CEO goes public, you've now got a whole new community that, that loves you and hates you being your shareholders, and they are hungry. They want to be fed information, they want to talk to you all the time, and if you start going on roadshows, which is necessary, and keep paying attention to your share price, but forget to run the asset, the asset falls apart, and now you've got nothing to run, and then your shares fall apart. Goes with it. So they've got to be very careful: a) that they're prepared to deal with the public, or make sure that whatever group they're joining has that capability within it to help them manage that, such that they don't get bogged down just being a public company manager versus being the asset manager that they're supposed to be doing. Public company being the beneficiary of. So that's is that a, is that a route for a good IR person? More than I are. It, it's it, because you're always, even when you're not raising money, you're raising money. You always have to be on. You always have to be updating your institutions. You always got to be talking to them. You've got to keep people informed. So you're not just coming out of the blue. Hey, I need money. You've got to be prepared to ask for it and know by those conversations whether it's even available. Some of them will come to you. If you're doing really well, people may just offer to throw money at you. That happens often. When your stock's successful and it's going up and the liquidity, that happened in high. People were phoning us up, oh, all right, five deal, 50 million bucks. No, we'll take a 75 one instead. It was money was flying up because of people wanted to invest in the space and the institution could be prepared to put that kind of money at a, at a very high, uh, at a high risk to them through a bot deal or something like that. So you need an IR person, but you also need someone that, that is qualified enough to be able to deal with the institutions and other segment of, of your, being a public company. So it, it's not a cakewalk. It's a lot of work. That person, sometimes the CFO, sometimes it's the VP development, and then the CEO may just do the occasional trip, but not the, the day-to-day. And then, you, yes, you have your your IR department can be, again, depending on how big the asset is. I mean, you can't have 10, 15 people on a small asset. You're going to overhead it to death. So it's it's... And that's the other problem with being a public company is, is you've got a very small management team that has to do a lot of different things. So in my case, like a lot of people hire my particular company because I'm a governance guy that helps manage the regulatory process and, and filings with the exchange and stock option plans, and all this stuff that is somewhat foreign where it's not foreign to at all. We just take that off the CEO's hands and say, you go run your company and we'll do all the regulatory worry. I'll just ask you questions, you answer them, and we'll file whatever you need to do. So you need that kind of support. I'm not saying you have to hire my company, but 
need that kind of support where, and the lawyer is not that person. They're a great resource, but they've got a whole bunch of clients and they're simply giving legal advice. They're not running a company. And that's another big mistake a lot of CEOs do. They just hand everything out to a lawyer and the lawyer doesn't always, they're not proactive necessarily. They are answering and sending you this big long legal letter with a big bill attached saying, here, give me these answers. If you're too busy, you don't give me answers. And they don't follow up because they're waiting for you. Now three weeks, a month's gone by and something didn't happen. You thought it was happening because you're too, you weren't paying attention to it. You need to identify someone in your company that's going to manage your, your accountants, they're going to manage your shareholders, and going to manage your lawyers. So whether that's an outside source, like someone, there's a bunch of groups like myself that are out there, but, or you bring the person in house. It's well worth it. There's great money. There's more multiple. Um, you can raise a lot of money if you hit the market at the right time. If it's not the right time, back off, wait, come back. Even if you spent 50 to 100 grand getting that far, it's not money wasted. It's just money delayed. So you can be careful. You don't do it just because you feel you have to. That's not likely long-term success. Well, excellent. I, it's... It's been really informative. I've uh, I've enjoyed hearing the perspectives, especially contrary to some of the uh, perhaps well, the false beliefs that are out there, but then also the the experience there. I know this is going to be hugely valuable for the audience. So thank you very much. I hope so. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.